Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, guys, to this week's episode of Heavy Metal Tones with me, your podcast host, Tony Evans. Um, it's slightly changed from the norm this week. It's going to be just me chatting re-Halloween stuff and ghosty stuff, as you can tell by the title. Firstly, I just want to apologise. Right at the end of last week's episode, I said Andy Sneap's vocals, uh, voicing is really amazing on the, on the, on the outro. I'm going to say phrasing. Um, because it's an acoustic piece of music, and I was meant to say phrasing, but vocals is on the head, um, and I boo-booed, and it was too hard for me to go back and take this little section out. So um, those who listened last week are going, what do you mean he's not singing on the outro? No, no, it's just the phrasing. Anyway, if you're listening to this now, you, hopefully you'll be listening to it around Halloween, um, either just before or just after. I can't remember when this gets sent out, but anyway... This is my Halloween episode. So this is my haunted life. These are true stories from my past. Now you may want to believe me. You may want not to believe me. Um, you may want to roll your eyes and be skeptical, or you might want to say, "Yeah, I believed. I'm with your tone." It's. I don't mind if you think I'm cuckoo. That's fine. If you don't, it doesn't matter. This is just me letting you know my story. And we'll begin in a second. Let me just get my cup of coffee over from the table. Not coffee, tea, see? I just went out for coffee this morning. Um, So where do we begin? Right. So I don't know if you all know this, and some of you will know. I used to do chat to a a ghost podcast called... um, With Kevin Eustace, right? Um, We need to talk about ghosts. I used to interact with him quite a bit, uh, and because I have lived with this, um, I don't know whether it's an ability, or whether it's a, a curse, or whether it's something, I don't know what you'd call it, I've lived with it now in my life, where um, it seemed hauntings and the spirit world seemed to follow me quite a bit. Now, this is not to say that um, I'm suddenly living with a house full of ghosts. No, that's not the case. But just things have happened in my life that, um, along the way, that have really been a bit different. My mother, God rest her soul. My mother had the sight. My mother was from a, um, as I mentioned before in the previous podcast, uh, from a German family way back two or three hundred years ago from Germany, probably a bit longer than that, and. Um, they, she had this unnerving sense, like she knew um, things before they happened. She would often um, have moments uh, where it would scare me as a child, to be honest with you. Um, when this is a very personal thing, I'm going to tell you this now. When my mother passed away 26 years ago, 27 years ago now. Um, my father, my mother was in hospital and she was very sick and she said to my dad um, can you go and get me a cup of tea from the cafe outside the hospital because I don't like the hospital tea and uh, 
he went away to go and dutifully do as he's asked and he come back and mum had passed away now she I think and I really do know this that my mum knew that it was her time and she didn't want to be she wanted to be alone she didn't want it she didn't want to put dad through that um that moment I can't imagine what it would have been like I don't want to imagine what it would have been like but my mum knew um, the people say that people know at the end don't they but my mum always my mother always knew um and it was just one of those things so where do I begin let's begin at the beginning Tony so my very first um experience uh that I have of of, of the of the spirit world um begins quite innocently I was five probably five maybe five and a half no I was five it was my fifth birthday because I got a um do you remember the buckaroo game where you had the horse and you take the plastic toys off before it bucked well there was a shark version a jaws version where you had to pull you open his jaws and you had to pull out the bits of like anchors and floaties and bits like that uh, and you had to try not to make his mouth shut on your uh, to lose the game I remember that vaguely because that was one of those gifts that I'll never forget. Anyway, I had to share my birthday cake with my younger brother because Robert was always a bit, um, you know, a little bit needy. And my mum made this awful cake. My dad, who was a pastry chef, didn't make it. My mum made it because she said she'd do it. And it was, God rest her soul, my mother could not cook. She could burn water, my mother. She'd make, she could probably sizzle she could probably um i mean she'd make toast that was unedible you know with my with my mum you never knew what you're getting with her dinner would come and it was always a bit of a bit of a bingo card of what would you find in your meal you know elastic bands a paper clip um an old cold baked bean on the bottom of a teacup <laughs> sounds horrible doesn't it but you know it was just my mother she just wasn't um, at all domestic she was a ballet dancer and she was a dancer and a gifted dancer and she didn't really want to be a housewife but that was the way it was back then anyway it was my fifth birthday and I was out playing in the garden and I came into the house and I went into the lounge room and sitting in the lounge room next to the fire was the oldest person I'd ever seen in my life absolutely like a hag like a really old old person with a long pointed nose and a little beanie hat on and was punched over and I, I screamed and ran out I had no idea this put and she didn't look didn't turn to look at me just kept looking straight ahead and when I told my mum she said there was no one in there there was no one in the lounge room we went back in and she what there was no one there I later found a picture of my great-grandmother and it was my great-grandmother um, and from then on things would happen like not regularly but they would happen um, I still see her in my head I can still see exactly what she looked like it's, it's crazy all those years ago 45 years ago I can tell you exactly what she was wearing how she was sitting motionless completely motionless and devoid of any motion of any movement um, didn't turn ahead didn't look at me just sat straight, uh, straight ahead um I've always thought I'd imagined what mum said to me and I've asked my dad in the past and he has no memory of it because my dad just, A, he's got dementia now anyway, but before then he didn't really have much memory of things because he would have been at work that day anyway. Um, and then as I got older, I shared a house with four brothers, as I've told you before, all music lovers, all in different types of, uh, different aspects of life and different times of their lives, quite a big space apart. And I shared, a, I shared a bedroom with my older brother that used to be my mum and dad's bedroom. And they moved into there, uh, into my brother's room because the one mum and dad's room was bigger. Okay, no, so I'll probably the other way around. My, my, they moved into my, the room that they're in now. Yes, that's right. It used to be my my, my brothers and my room, and they moved in there. And on the wall, it was just quite. It was imagine it, it's the sixties, right? Seventies house, and there's like um, shiny, bright, patterned silver kind of wallpaper. And on the wall, uh, at the front of on one of the walls was a 
a picture a picture a poster of Bruce Lee slightly ripped holding the nunchucks from uh, from Enter the Dragon and opposite that picture was my bed there was two beds my dad got um, bought a couple of bunk beds and cut them in half because he was you know thought they'd be saved some money and there were those sort of metal beds with the springy springs you know the ones that feel like, almost feel like prison cell beds and um I was lying there. Now, I would have been probably eight or nine, I think. It was a beautiful, sunny day. The light was streaming through the window. You know the light when I've got to pick, you picture it. The light's coming through the window. And the, the, the dust and the particles are caught in the beams of light through the, through the, the neck curtains. Um, and I'm lying on the bed having a bit of a nap. It's a Saturday morning. I'd just been up early watching kids' TV programs and gone back to bed, waiting for mum to make... Um, we never had lunch, but mum would make like sandwiches if on a weekend, really. It was our only sort of luxury, really. And I was lying in bed, having a nap, and I woke up, and right opposite my bed, again, was this really tall, menacing clown. Now, I thought I, dre- I, thought I was dreaming this, but I remember it now as if I was awake. I don't know if for 42 years later I would remember it a dream, but this was so vivid. He was at the end of my bed, and he was so tall that he was curled over, um, and he's sort of hunched into under the ceiling, and he's sort of leaning over the bed, and it wasn't like a it kind of clown. It was, it was just like an ordinary, like a McDonald's, Ronald McDonald's kind of clown. He didn't have any like eat sharp teeth or or claws he just was there tall and grinning and swaying i remember um leaning over me like a jack-in-the-box clown and i remember screaming and in a second he was gone and mum comes rushing in and i and she said you must have had a nightmare and i was wide awake absolutely wide awake now it could have been it's one of those things in my life that i think may have been um a dream it, but I remember it so so vividly um, the house I grew up in so mum and dad moved around a few houses when I was young because um, it was a bit of a comedy of errors really the first house we grew up in in Burnt Oakham Lundell Crescent um, the house blew up now you, you might think what do you mean blew up but it, it actually did my brother my silly brother um, there was a gas leak in the gas cup in the from the meter underneath the stairs and my brother went looking for it with a match because it was there was no light under there that was a candle yeah i mean how ronald survived it is beyond me he got flown across the landing mum was blown out of the kitchen window it she broke a few bones but didn't obviously didn't die um and i was left in my cot upstairs um at that time robert hadn't been born yet and i was in my cot upstairs and my brother michael um rescued me now he tells me that my cot fell through the floor i don't believe that i think he just went and and saved my life so i you know for all of his uh silliness and his uh i have issues with him in sorts all sorts of ways he still means a lot to me because he did save my life um, so that, and then we were put into several sort of different kinds of um, what they call in the UK in the 70s halfway houses. Because we, I grew up in a council house. My mum and dad didn't own the house. We were um, govo houses, they call them in Australia. And I don't know what they call them in America. But in England, they're called council houses. And so while they were waiting to put us into um, a house, they, they put us into this house in, well, after a couple of really bad moves they moved us to this house in Hendon and Park Road 96 Park Road sorry to shout that out but that's where it was um, and it was a corner house quite a a that was post uh, sort of it was built in the 1920s an old house um, pre-war and it lived it'd been lived in by one old woman and her sister so a couple of sisters and they'd lived in there all their lives they died in the house um unfortunately one of them died in my bedroom which is probably why i had issues um but the weirdest thing that we found when we we moved in i remember um i was only uh i think i was probably hmm, 
think it was 18 months, 19 months when I moved in. But my brother um, tells me that he found up in the loft um, a a bunk bed with magazines on it and um, and a skull. He reckons. I mean, I think I think he was just doing that to to wind us up. But the bunk bed was up there. I remember seeing that, and I remember seeing the magazine. So we think that there might have been squatters in previous to that. Uh, you just never know, right? Anyway, that's a side note. What I'm trying to say is it was a really menacing house. Um, a really, really menacing house. And it had a real sort of, I don't know, never... We lived there for 20... My parents lived there for 20... 25 years, I think. In all that time, luck just seemed to seep away from the place. You know, it was one of those kind of houses. Yeah, it, it sort of just, we, 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 we arrived at the house. Dad was uh, doing well in his career. My brothers were doing okay in school. Mum was pregnant with my younger brother. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, we thought this was the place that would be our home. This is what my mum and dad said to me later in life. They thought this would be the place to be and we would finish here. It was a nice suburb. Hendon is a nice posh part of North London. Uh, well, we, we wasn't we didn't know, sort of a raggy arse end of it, but, you know, it was still a posher than where I grew up in Burnt Oak. And um, it all changed. Within a few months, dad lost his business, um, stopped, you know, couldn't get work. Mum got really sick. My brothers uh, were sent to Borstal. Um, things just changed. It was really a negative house. Uh, and to be fair, I always felt that. Um, my dad tells me a story. That there was, I mean, I'm, I'm sidetracking. None of this is, I'm not running this down. This is just off the top of my head. So if I go back and forth, apologize. But this is my haunted life, right? So um, I remember vividly my bedroom was was floorboarded. I didn't have carpets. And it was a really small bedroom. Pardon me. That I shared with my brother for, till he was till I was 16, till he moved out. And um, until I moved, I actually moved out of home when I was 16 as well. But I came back again. But that is a different story. So um, my brother had this... He was obsessed and he still is with air guns. Like cap guns and air guns and air pistols. And he had this little, um, what we call a gat gun, which is like you you basically push the end in, the, the end of the gun into the back of the gun, which locates a spring in, and then you put the pellet in and you press the trigger and it fires it out, right? But you need this little cap at the back that holds the, when you put the pellet in, that holds the spring in. And I took that out and I was sort of playing around with it and I put it on the bedside table I turned around, and I, I turned back, and it was gone. And it was nowhere. And I had floorboards. I, I'll tell you something. I pulled that bedroom apart because my brother was going to give me a cane in for it. I couldn't find it anywhere. It was not in the grooves of the floorboard. It wasn't on the bed. It wasn't on the mattress. And I didn't have a boy look. I had a real thorough look. And, you know, I still remember that to this day, Michael gave me a whoop. He gave me a good old smack for it because, you know, um, I was probably about 11. Michael was at that time 18, he 19. He really just, oh man, I got a, a absolute smacking for it. I don't blame him. Well, I don't want to don't condone violence, but I don't blame him being annoyed. And all, all sorts of things were missing. Money would go missing. Mum's um, wedding ring disappeared once for a while. Um, jewelry. We'd accuse each other for stealing stuff of ours when it wasn't them. And when my father tells me this story that, and I believe him because my father's uh, on the same kind of spectrum sort of as me. Um, he was sleeping in the lounge room. Mum had moved, they'd moved out to the new home because Mum had got very, very sick and couldn't climb stairs. So they, they went to a special home um, up, up the road, which was one level, um, where my father sadly was until he went into a home. Um, easy for her to access, very easy to clean, uh, easy to keep warm, cheaper to run and so on, closer to the amenities. And mum was in hospital as she was in and out and dad um, was sitting there in his chair, fell asleep watching TV 
everything's packed up just the TV in his chair and the fire and he woke up and in the middle of the room was all this stuff little plastic soldiers the end of that cap gun the gat gun uh, money jewelry it was just all returned now you can believe me you cannot believe me you can you can say my dad's a liar and that's perfectly fine this is all about my belief but if you believe it it's up to you it's it's my truth right I hate that term but it is my truth um, I, I believe my father when he said it happened um, because he showed me some of the stuff that that he got back and it's stuff that I remember losing little green soldier little being green plastic soldier I got in a stocking when I was Christ at Christmas action man clothes all that sort of stuff the only thing I can think of is dad was storing it and he just felt guilty and gave it back like why would he do that it makes no sense so the house itself had a spirit to it an uneasiness to it I, was, I never felt very happy alone um my father would took all the locks off the doors because he um as a child my father was treated quite poorly by my grandfather and um, locked in cupboards and stuff so my father never liked having locks on the doors and nothing had locks on it so you know i put my own lock on when i was like 12 or 13. my brother put his own lock on when he had started dating girls so we could have some privacy but apart from that none of them had locks toilets bar from nothing and um you never felt easy i never felt easy particularly on the staircase um going up the stairs with my back to the we used to have a larder so in the england they had a cold storeroom called a larder which is usually a room that's the coldest part of the house and um where you kept all your milk before you had fridges and so on and the larder always felt like there was something in it i always dreamt there was something coming out of that cupboard and, and walking up the stairs faceless being that would come up and stand outside my door um and it was a regular dream i had it probably from the age of 13 till well even younger until i was before i left home it was a regular dream i had and i'd wake up in cold sweats with it and and when i'd go downstairs the blue door was open to the larder and it used to freak the shit out of me uh, to the point where i would um put a chair in front of it when i went to bed um if i was on my own in the house which was very rarely i'd never stayed on my own in my house alone i never liked it um dad didn't like it mum was all right but she sort of didn't like it either uh it was just a place that you know it didn't want us there that's what it felt like i remember other times um apparitions that i picked up in that house one of the ones most vividly was i was coming out of my bedroom and above my bedroom door was the manhole cover to the loft now my brother liked to spend a lot of time in the loft that was his thing i don't know why he loved it up there he just loved it up there it was he made a sort of a den up there he'd put floorboards down he put electric lights in he quite liked it up there and uh often he'd leave the blue trap door aside right and to climb up there you need a ladder but if you were like me nimble you just use the banister now you'd get a ladder but then you use the you'd use the banister um, and uh, I came out of the bedroom, it was mid-afternoon, maybe getting into dusk, and I looked up, and there were these feet in blue jeans and in what we called bother boots when I was a kid, like DMs, and they were uh, turn-ups. My brother used to wear turn-ups, and they were hanging over the edge of the, of the, um, of the, of the hole in the roof, and I was like, Michael, Mike, what are you doing? I thought you'd gone to work. And the legs sort of disappeared into the darkness and I heard a laughter, didn't recognise it. And I was like, okay, Mike, stop being a dickhead. And off I went. And I went off to Brent Cross and whatever I was doing, the couch, jumping mates, going to a gig, whatever. On the way, when I came back, I saw Mike and I said, what the bloody hell were you doing in the loft this afternoon? He said, I wasn't. I was at work. I've been at work all day. I, hadn't been, I haven't been home until late night, which I didn't believe him, right? And he swears on his laugh that he wasn't at home and he wasn't wearing those clothes and he never owned didn't want to think about it he didn't have bright red dot mines they were not his thing he wore black dot mines and i was like oh okay and it, I, he gave me a shiver but i thought and i said to him i think there's someone in the loft and we went up and looked and there was no one there no one um there was times when um i would feel um not alone in my bedroom when I'd feel the presence of someone sitting on the end of the bed. 
So, you know, these things uh, followed me a lot. And when Grandad died, I was still living in a Park Road then, my, very close to my grandfather. And uh, I had these real sort of heavy, dark thoughts, really bad, dark thoughts. And I had to go to, I went to a, um, to a medium, would you believe? Because um, I couldn't get a large, <laughs> just like Joe in there. Um, I went to a medium. Um, my girlfriend at the time had said, come on, let's go to this medium, might help you. And I was like, oh, no, I don't believe all that crap. No, I'm not going to go. But I went. And the medium, without knowing me, without knowing my, my family, so the other side of London as well, We didn't. it wasn't like down the road. They didn't know my family. The medium knew my grandfather's name, my grandmother's name, who had died back in 58. Um, I think, again, it's on a side note. That comes, my mother had it from my grandmother because my grandmother... Mother was pregnant with me. Sorry, with my... No. Mother was pregnant with my um, older brother. With my first brother, Andrew. And... In 1959. And it was my... And it, my the story goes, and my mother says, that my... Um, before then... Sorry, I apologise. <clears throat> I'm going to... I'm going back. I've, see, this is the memories in my head. Um... My mother and father were going to get married on March the 1st, okay? And when the, my mother, grandmother, she was had a, a brain tumour um, from a fall that she had when she was a young woman. And um, at that time, she would have been 57, 58. And um, Agnes, her name was. And she said to my mother get married on Boxing Day because I won't be here on March, I won't be here on March the 1st and my mother said look don't be silly this is ridiculous you you don't be silly but because my mother did everything her mother said that's what they did they got married on Boxing Day 1958 and March the 1st 1959 um, the day that my sister was due was born my grandmother died and this is something that I think she, like I said, my mother knew and so did my grandmother. This is a really powerful, this is where I think it comes from and it was handed to me. Anyway, so I backtracked to the house. Um, yeah, so I never felt alone. I never felt comfortable. Um, it was horrible in the dark. We never had any luck. Any luck that we got got sucked out of that house. Um, our fortunes didn't change as a family really until we all separated out from that house, to be fair. Um, really. Uh, and... I don't know whether whether it was the place or there's just our luck in our family. Who knows? Anyway, and that's enough for the jibber jab on the first part. I've talked for 26 minutes. Would you believe? And you go, Tony. That's understandable. You could talk for hours. I know I can. Um, we're going to come to the second half. I will talk then more about more modern um, my more modern experiences uh, with the uh, with the supernatural. I hope it hasn't given you the willies. It's just. I find it really fascinating and interesting. The second half might be a bit scarier. But anyway, chat to you in the second half. Bye for now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to my spooky haunted life. Um, Going to move on to my teenage years. Now, I worked when I first left school. I left school at 16, which I regretted, and I went back and did further education. But I left school when I was 16. Not because I hated it. I just wanted to get into the big wide world. I was sick of being told what to do. And I went to work at a for a pittance, mind you, um, as an usher in my local cinema, Hendon... Odeon it was it was the Canon it was a Canon sorry Canon Cinema it used to be the Odeon the ABC and it became the Canon owned by the Canon group that made some absolute shocking movies He-Man and the Masters Universe is one of them we won't talk about that um, and it was an old theatre that from the, in the 30s would be a one of those cinemas that were had a restaurant attached where you'd go for the whole day you'd have meal you'd see a theatre show and then you'd stay and the screen would come down organ would come up from the stage and you watch a, a movie right with entertainments in between music musical you had a big stage behind it a big black stage like a big backstage it was really quite scary and it was a really quite imposing building and the first real reason that the time i knew that there was something going on um a lot of the old folks i worked with there wouldn't go and lock up um Cinema One's exits, exit one and two. So Cinema One held 565 seats. It was a had a big stage and a big screen and two great big circular staircases that went down in the sort of brick um, back end of the building that took you down to the exits. They were push bar exits, so to lock them you had to put a chain around them, otherwise you could get in quite easily. So. Mr. Mugging's job here, Mr. Tony, Mr. Mr. 16-year-old first job. Go on, Tony, off you go. You will lock up number one's exits. So I go off, all full of piss and vinegar, as my dad would say. And um, I'm locking up. Now, this was on the first shift. I've done this a few times. But every time I'd go down there, on the left-hand side, I'd smell cigar smoke really strong cigar smoke now back then you could smoke in the cinema there were smoking sections so what people didn't need to go in the exit to smoke it was no need to but they could always smell strong cigar smoke and this one night i remember the movie because it was um tango and cash i believe was the movie that was on uh, in that cinema i think at the time i think it was tango and cash yes and i was going down there and i was locking up the chains and I turn around and I see this I didn't see all of him but I saw a part of a guy sort of at the top of the stairs before it went round to the left in a boiler suit and a cap and he sort of looked at me around the corner and then went round the corner and I remember shouting hey mate um, we're closing up here you shouldn't be in the exits you need to go up through the front and being 16 and super fit I pelted up the stairs absolutely pelted upstairs and it's about three turns of about 20 steps per flight of stairs. And he was not there. He was not there. I run into the major into the cinema. All I could see was my mate cleaning. Get down to the front. Nothing. I run into the foyer. Ask the manager. His name was Mr. Dooley, I remember. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Anyway, the next morning... I bump into Ron, but the old projectionist, good old Ron, strange old Ron, funny old character. That's another story. Um, he'd been working there since the late 60s. And I said to him, Ron, did you, you lock up? You locked up the last person out of the building last night? And he's, yeah. So did you see a guy in a boiler suit with cloth cap, middle-aged man? And he said, um, no, but I know who you're talking about. And I was like, what do you mean you know who I'm talking about? He said, well, 
this old fella, um, he hung himself in the off the pipes in the fire escape that the set of stairs you're on. If you look up there to the ceiling, there's a, several steady, sturdy pipes, and he hung himself from there back in the late 60s. And I was like, I, I, I'd like, it freaked me out. I, I was like, were you taking the piss? You know, come on, what's going on? And he goes, you're lucky. Not many of us have seen him. I've seen him once or twice. but And it was a really weird time because it seemed to come and follow me a bit. Um, the time I was on, there were times when um, I'd go into the side room to get posters for the to put out the front and where the old chandelier was stored and uh the lights would go on and off while i'm in there like on and off flicker on and off or they, like they would literally turn off i'd go back turn them on they turn them off it was a really horrible dark room as well and i hated it and it never felt comfortable um i used to run up and down the exits in one and two now to do the chains um really just didn't want to, i'd close my eyes if i could you know uh, I remember the, watching the chains. In fact, my f mate Colin and I watched the chains on the front door sway after I'd locked them, like as if someone was checking them. And they were dead still when we walked away. Um, I had my manager told me that he physically saw someone f walk through the wall um, into his office. I, he was a bit of a drunkard, so maybe he was, I don't know, that was part of the thing. But um, the one that really stuck in my mind is that Colin and I, we'd, we'd, put, we'd, we'd reeled on, because he was a projectionist, and I was, started, I was training to be a projectionist as well, because I wanted to get more money. Um, and we'd reeled on this movie, and I think it was... I think it's Death Becomes Her, but I also think it was Hand... No, it wasn't, it was Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And we put it on, and we thought, well, let's watch this movie before everyone else starts, let's watch it. And we, and we reeled it on, we're there watching it, and... As I'm speaking to you, as a truth, as, a, as my witness, the exit door in door one opened at the bottom near the screen and closed. And a few seconds later, exit door two opened and closed. We both looked at each other, Colin and I. Then we looked up at, for some reason, I looked up at the projection box. And there looking through the window of the projection box was a man in a cap. I could barely see his face. He didn't have much features, but he was wearing a cloth cap. And I'm not lying, as I speak here, Colin saw it as well, and we ran out. We ran out of the cinema. And we came back the next day, and we were in a lot of trouble because we left the projector on, which could run, those things are really expensive if the bulbs go, hundreds of pounds worth of bulb. And we let it just run through and flicker. And we got, an, I, Colin got a warning and I got a, a warning. We tried to explain that that had happened, but they didn't believe us. Um, and we, what we're going to believe? They're going to say that, yeah, ghosties and googlies kept you from um, doing your job properly. After that, um, Colin wouldn't be up in the projection room on his own. I wouldn't stay back and clean like I used to for extra money. Um, I really hate going into the the the, um, the poster room or the room. One of my jobs was I used to get paid extra danger money to go onto the hoarding up a ladder and change the names of the movies coming, you know, moving from one movie, I remember moving, you know, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade down to Cinema 2, putting up the new one at the top and so on, like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels or whatever it was. And um, I used to get paid extra money for that because it was quite dangerous uh, in the wind. And uh, to go into a little room to do, to get the numbers and the letters, and again, that didn't feel good either. It had a very bad vibe. Um, at least to say that it wasn't a fun time working there. When I was grateful when I finally got away from it, went back to college. But it, it just seemed to follow me. It seemed to escalate when I was there. The guy said nothing happened when they were there. So obviously it just didn't clung on to me. But then I moved to Australia in 97. I meet my lovely wife. I have my ch my first child. And my wife being Australian, so I wanted to come home and watch what, you know, best movie ever made. And I moved to Australia in 97. And soon after that my mother like two within two weeks of coming my mother died now she had been di diagnosed with an incurable cancer that i hadn't been told about and my dad decided to keep it from me so that mum we wouldn't change our minds and we would go and do the right thing for us because mum held dad back slightly because god rest her mum would never travel anywhere and didn't want to be away from dad and so when dad got op opportunities to work for british aerospace he worked for for a little while for rolls royce that's where they met working for Rolls-Royce and while he was training to be a chef and um, 
he didn't take it because of that and so he didn't want me to be the same he wanted me to make my future my future my choice and i left and when my wife was heavily pregnant with our second child we were staying at first um we just moved into the new house just up from my in-laws house and we were over their place just having dinner and i put clem and my youngest my oldest child then into the cot um she's 17 months and still was sort of in a cot uh, at that time because the in-laws didn't have a bed spare bed so i put her in the cot and i'm singing songs to her and next thing i know a teddy bear flies off the shelf behind me there was stuff behind three other rows of teddy bears it was my sister-in-law's old bedroom so it was teddy bears everywhere it was a teddy bear that my in-laws had given me when clem was born that sings waltzing matilda when you touch a button on its paw it was a a, a a stuffed koala that teddy bear lifted off the shelf and landed behind me there's no other way it could do it i started playing waltzing matilda and the only way that could happen is if i touched it and i didn't touch it um i was ever so slightly freaked but i knew it was i had a feeling it was mum and i was like mum what are you doing and i picked up clem and i took her into the into the lords and they said what do you mean don't put her to bed and i was like no no i think she needs to stay awake a bit longer <laughs> i got a little bit freaked out i don't usually get freaked out but it freaked me out slightly the second time I met, she came and visited me was when um we had a computer the old tower computer an old 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 uh, ibm k52 whatever it was in the bed in the lounge room on, on a desk and um a wheelie chair that we'd push in front of it like a computer desk and uh i was going kid, kids were asleep karen was asleep and i was going to bed i'd been playing games on something and i pushed the chair in turned the computer off now mum loved touching buttons loved calculators loved future things really into doctor who and blake seven and this is tomorrow's world loved future stuff and um the wheelchair the chair pushed back way out from under the table and the computer turned on and i knew it was mum I just knew it was and I turned around to the void and I said come on mum I'm going to bed enough's enough I'm going to bed now and I turned the computer off and I pushed the chair back in and I went to bed after that she used to come quite regularly uh, we had an L-shaped hallway where our my bedroom was in our bedroom was in the corner and then either side of the L was my two kids bedrooms so if you stood at my bedroom you could see into both doors and mum used to come and in, I couldn't see it directly on, but I see my peripheral vision. She'd be looking at me while I was reading in bed, and she'd look over at the kids' bedrooms, and she, sometimes she'd go to the one bedroom, others she'd go to the other. And she'd do it quite regularly, and it was a, for me it was a feeling that she was saying, I'm looking after you, and I'm looking after the kids. And over time, she just disappeared and faded. And very, very rarely, she would come. I don't see her, I haven't seen her for a long time, um, I think she's now well and truly passed and is happy where she is and happy that the kids are how they are and how we are in life. Because it was a tough time coming to Australia, tough time changing culturally, um, taking, you know, away from family, away from, you know, 24 or 5 years of my of my existence to a completely different country. Yes, it spoke, we spoke the same language, but there were still a lot of differences back then. Not so much now, but it was very difficult to settle in. Because I was individual, I wasn't like a lot of the others that were here. And Canberra being Canberra back then was quite a quiet place and a, and a quite one horse town. Not so much now, it's really vibrant and and, um, and, and youthful and, and, and full of vigour, but back then it wasn't. And the airport was a shed and if you wanted a vegetarian meal, they would just take the meat off out of the meat, out of the dish and give you what was left. That was the kind of planet, the kind of city that it was on. It was adverts for sheep dip, I remember. <laughs> anyway different world so that was a, that's the nice side of 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 my of my haunted life but after that i came across some interesting ones um working in on a film shoot in uh, in a place called um bangandor which is just outside canberra it's a lovely little town there's a pub there called the carrington which is quite renownedly haunted and we were shooting an advert for mattresses there you know it paid the bills anyway um we put a candle on one bar because we were shooting it like as if the person was coming to bed with candles like was set in the old times and we put the band candle in one bar and we shut the two doors to the one bar 
and we were having a coffee outside and a cup of tea and whatever. Went back into the bar and the candle was not there. It had moved, and I'm not lying here, it had moved to the other bar. And to move it to the other bar, you used to bring it out the front, take it past us, and put it in the other bar. There was no other way around. And apparently this is quite a common thing for the um, the ghost at the Carrington to do, is to move objects. Um, this, listen to say, was it was during the day. So all this business about you know ghosts only coming out at night, it's a load of hokum because a lot of my experiences have been during the day. Um, another one was, I was at the uh, the Liaolamla Brickworks, which is an old brick factory here in Canberra, making Canberra red bricks. And we were shooting a war movie, a war scene of some kind. I was making some really interesting graphic um, chest wounds. So I was in the in the, one of the arches where they make the bricks. I was on my own, painting my um, appliances, ready to apply them to the actor. The crew were at the other side of the brickworks. I was on my own quietly mid-afternoon and I looked, I thought, hang on, I felt like I wasn't alone. I looked up and peering around the corner was a young kid. Little kid, blonde haired, I couldn't tell if he had blue eyes. His face was indiscriminate. He smiled at me. Literally, I could see was his head and shoulders and then his head went back and that was the end of it. I thought, okay, must be one of the kids in the thing. I don't know what the actors are. So I went over, it was about a five to ten minute walk to the, the closed set. So if you know what a closed set, it means it's that it's, um, no one's in, it's locked set. And I said to the director, I said, where's the kid? Blonde haired kid, we're we using him as part of the, sh- the shoot. And he's like, no kids, mate, it's just us. And I found out later that the Brickworks is quite a phenomenally haunted place. Um, usually by a young, ch- I, I caught a child ghost haunts the place. So lucky, he was, it wasn't threatening, wasn't scary. Gave me a bit of a shiver, um, but it wasn't um, anything menacing. If you want menacing, well, I'm going to give you menacing right now because this is the one that's been leading up to it. I mean, there are lots of stories that I could tell you. I'm sort of cherry picking them, right? This is the one that became very personal, came home with me, and um, at least to say, ah. Uh, yeah, it uh, was something that really f- I felt threatened by and uh, it took a lot of time. It took me a little while to get over it, actually. So I'm just going to take a break because this, this is a long one. I want to just have a pop off for a second and get some more uh, drinks. So I'll see you again after the break um, and we'll talk about the what I would consider my most ex- haunting experience. Bye for now. Welcome back to This Haunted Life, a spin-off, a spin-off, I would say, of Heaven Bird Tones, a different thought altogether for this particular part of the season of the year. But I hope you're enjoying it. Anyway, um, this is when it becomes really personal, and this is a warning to all of you out there that this can happen to you, and you need to make sure that if you're going to do anything, re- and I hate the term ghost hunting because I do go... Um, looking for spirits but I don't go hunting them I think it's I think it's very the wrong term I'm not a big fan of it Um, but Karen and I both have a love of um, well particularly myself colonial um, buildings so and I mean colonial prisons mainly prisons and hospitals Uh, this country at re Australia has some absolutely fascinating and in a weird and strange way beautifully built and designed colonial prisons now obviously a prison is a prison and is going to hold some residual energies like my house in Hendon did uh, and like the cinema did it's going to hold residual energies some of them good some of them bad a lot of them very very um, sad um, and very much, I don't know what the word is, I won't say violent, but there's some real energies there. Anyway, about, we'd been to several 
you know, here and there, never had any major problems. A few, you know, things that may have sort of followed, I may have got something, but this particular time, we were at a good friend's wedding, so this is about 11 years ago, and uh, we, we was at the Hunter Valley, which is a, just outside Sydney. It's a beautifully beautiful place. There's great golf courses, the wineries there. It's one of my most favourite places in Australia, actually, and one of the best holidays my wife and I've, I have ever had, actually. But we we it was the day of of the wedding, and we thought we're going to do it in the morning because it was all in the afternoon, and we were staying at this lovely golf resort, beautiful place. Um, and we're not really wine people, so we weren't going to go to wineries. It just wasn't our thing. We thought we were going to drink the wedding anyway. So we found out that Maitland Jail had tours. Now, Maitland is a little town in Hunter Valley, and it's got a major jail that has been decommissioned back in 89. Um, was it 92? One of the early, that time, around that time. Uh, and it was a, a prison for violent criminals, had some some very very nasty criminals in there an old jail had been around there for a long time and you could do tours and i thought well why not so we got in the car we drove to maitland we had a great coffee there first a little walk around the town um then past the house which i found out was haunted which my friend john lived in which is a very small world and um we did the tour of the prison now, there were, the, the prison itself, because it had two sections, it had an old Victorian part and it had a modern part. And the old Victorian part, now, you got these little, as you went in, you were given these little um, tour guides. You put your headphones in and you press play, little MP3 players, right? And uh, there was only myself, my wife, um, a pregnant, heavily pregnant woman and a partner and a, a small group of special needs kids with their help, helpers now they were way ahead of us they we could see them coming and going but they were way ahead of us they were nowhere near us and we were in the new we we're in the old part and we're sitting there looking at these different cells look, hearing the stories about these uh you know the separation between women and men and 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 how the gays and, and the heterosexuals they separate them and all this sort of stuff um and and the aboriginals and so on back then it was quite a harsh place and uh we heard this almighty bang, like a real bang, like a cell door banging. And we looked up and we could see, because there was three floors, three gantries, and there was no one around us. And we both stopped our MP3 players and rewound it to see if it was on there. It might have been a sound effect. It wasn't. And we got a little bit freaked out and was like, quick, let's, let's get out. And it felt menacing, right? So we, we couldn't go back the way we come, so we had to keep going. You had a specific way you had to follow. And uh, we got into the main courtyard, and we were a bit rough, rough you know, rustled. The feathers were a bit rustled, but it was okay. Um, didn't think too much of it. Thought well, maybe just the wind or something we've misheard. Someone else in the another tour group person, and we brushed it off. And um, we come across one cell, and it was the it was the cell of um, Ivan Malat, a very known, well known serial killer here in Australia. That was the um, sort of the inspiration for Wolf Creek. And uh, he was there for a little while before he was moved to other to another prison, to Goulburn, I believe. And um, anyway, I couldn't... We would go in and out of the cells, but I was not overly impressed by that. I didn't want... I felt very uneasy, but Karen went in and asked her to shut the door behind her, and I, I got this sudden sense of panic. She was in there, and I got this sudden sense of panic, real heavy panic... And I opened up the door and I said, get out, come on, you're not doing that, I don't want you in there. I didn't feel at all good. And through the whole tour, and we went around the whole of the prison, the bathrooms, the, the, but we went to the death cell where I got a really bad headache, um, where the lady, now this could have been, um, I don't know, well, actually no, it wasn't uh, put in my head because we only found out that, that you get the headache in that room after we left. I talked to the woman at the desk and I said and she said how did you go to your tour and I said we went to the death cell and she said how was that I said I've got a really bad headache she said men get headaches in there strange right um, we went to the kitchens the it was just we went around the whole place we even went to the bit where um, one of the creepiest bits was where um, 
uh, you can talk to your, you know, you get visitors, a visitor center. So I was one side as if I was a prisoner and Karen was the other side as if she was a uh, a visitor. And I had to go for a whiz and I was like, I'll use the toilets behind me and she's sitting there. And I went into the toilet and I, it was a very small toilet, very cold. And a really baking hot four degree, degree day. It was bitterly cold in there. And I felt like someone was standing behind me, breathing on my neck. It was really freaky. Anyway, not much happened after that. And we went round the, the prison, had a great time, came back, went to the wedding, had an absolute fucking, you know, phenomenally good time, um, and came back to Canberra. And about a week later, um, my two girls used to work late nights in a cafe, in a cafe um, on Friday nights. I didn't work Friday, this was my day off. And my wife used to work in night times as well, in a takeaway, just because she, she was doing a, a food course thing and she liked that it was a bit of work experience for her, which she just enjoyed doing in the end. And so Friday nights was on my own. And um, I was putting washing out on the washing line and my daughter was about to go out to work and I've got a big sliding door with quite a heavy lock. And now to lock that lock, you have to physically, you hear it lock, right? And it's really quite a stiff lock. I shut the door and I went to the washing line and I heard the front door close. I thought, oh, my door's gone, no problem. And then I was hanging the washing out and I turned back round. It was about 5.25 and I couldn't open, no, I was taking the washing off the line, sorry. And I couldn't open the door, it was locked. I thought, it's funny. Clemmie Quinn knew I was in the back garden. Why did she lock it? Which is not what she would do. So I thought it must have just been an accident. I'll wait till Karen comes home. She'll be home in about 10 minutes. I'll just sit in the garden, relax. And as I was looking through the kitchen window, there was this black mass. And I'm going to say the whole entryway from the kitchen to the front room and to the stairs up was this engulfed by black. Couldn't see it through it. This was a bright, sunny, it was a November morning, afternoon, right? here in Australia it was getting hot and I looked at it for about it felt like a few seconds it looked like it was looking at me and then it just flashed up the stairs it shrank and flew up the stairs it was like a cape behind it like a figure of a human with a cape almost shapeless but I could tell it was human and I freaked out oh it was I mean it felt like it was going for minutes but it was only a few seconds and within a minute or two the front door opens and my lovely wife comes in I'm standing there looking through the door. She lets me in. I tell her what's happened. I didn't tell her about the, the black shape. I just said, look, I think we got locked up by Gwyn. Oh, that's silly girl. Off she goes and Karen gets changed to go off to work. Now I'm on my own, okay? I'm thinking I had put this black shape in the back of my mind. I thought surely it was just a figment of imagination and I forgot about it. Karen went off to work. And it was around about seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. It's starting to get dark. And I suddenly felt this absolute um, sense of dread, real heavy dread, to the point where I couldn't take my eyes off the stairs when upstairs. I couldn't take my eyes off them. And suddenly I heard, we've got wooden floors, no carpets. I heard footsteps upstairs. I heard a cupboard open, a cupboard shut, and footsteps, and then dragging. And I sat there in the chair looking at the stairs. I couldn't face away from it. I couldn't turn away from it. I felt this absolute sense of fear and dread and apprehension. And it felt like a fortnight until I'm sitting there dying for a wee. I couldn't go to the toilet. I couldn't go make up dinner. I couldn't get a drink. I stood there staring at this stairwell, hearing these noises. And it was about nine o'clock at night. And both my kids come in and Karen. And all of a sudden, the dread goes like that, lifts, as if it never happened. And every time for the next month that I was on my own on a Friday night, and as soon as the girls left and it started to turn dusk, things would happen. Noises, sense of dread, fear. I had to paint the stairwell. I remember I was painting the stairwell up to the stairs, and I couldn't look at the top of the stairs I had this sense that I was being watched I hated every minute of it I would do halfway and then I'd tell the family that I got tired and I did rest in the morning I you know I I would make my dinner I would take my chair and I would sit at the bottom of the stairs looking up 
because it says turn left it's a corner um, up to the corner as if if I took my eyes off it it would come for me and I felt absolutely full of dread and fear and uh, why I don't know but I was talking to an old friend of the family's and she's quite spiritual Kit her name was she now lives up on the up in up near the Hunter Valley as well and um she had lost her husband a few years before and I was chatting to her and she said you don't seem yourself I said I'm something's in my house something is not letting me rest but it only seems to come for me and uh, I told her where we'd been you know, and what happened and the sense of dread I'd had in the in the prison and she said to me you know what it is Tony something's attached itself to you has followed you home obviously clearly likes you uh, you need to tell it to go you need to be quite firm and say this is my place leave and go now and I was sort of like felt a bit of a ninny really and the following week came and, and the same thing happened again more noises more dread until I sort of had enough I thought this is my house this is my place I how dare you and I went to the stairs and at the bottom of the stairs in the loudest voice I could gather I said, thank you for coming and visiting, but you are not welcome, please leave. And I'm not lying, as, as I'm sitting here, like you might think I'm lying, right? I'm not. But that sense of dread lifted. Now, it did not go straight away. I still felt a bit of apprehension going upstairs in the dark of my house. I still felt a little apprehension being on my own in the dark, upstairs in the house. Never downstairs, only upstairs. Um... And only when I was alone. But it did fade and went pretty quickly. Within a week or so, it was gone. Maybe a few days. It wasn't instantaneous, but it was gone. Um, so my warning to you, friends, listeners, to this. That if you are going to... Uh, I've learned since then um, how to protect myself. Uh, there are things that I do. That I do to clean and keep myself safe from these things that might attach. Um... If you do don't do that, you are interested in going and seeking the other side. Be a little bit cautious. Be understanding that these things are not to be dabbled with. Um, it might be fun in movies. It might be okay in, a, in your in, the, in your lyrics in your metal songs. It might be something that you feel that you could do without any protection. But trust me after this experience and it really really rattled me it wasn't a day it wasn't one off it went on for weeks and it wasn't till years later that I told the family and it really freaked them they got really upset with me that I didn't tell them but how could I tell them what would they do you know it would just scare them because it didn't affect them it only affected me um, so the moral of the story is um, if you are gifted and you do see them and they do come to you um, protect yourself on one side note, I did have a really sweet moment only recently where I was um, on the bus going to work and I saw this guy at the side of the road picking rubbish up, an old man picking rubbish up and putting it into a plastic bag. Now, the bus was at a part of the road where there was no crossings, there was no parks to duck into, there was no way of being out of my vision. I'm looking at him, he's looking down at the ground and he's picking rubbish up. And I looked down at my watch to see what time it was. I looked back. Bus hasn't moved. He is completely gone. There was nowhere for him to go. And I just feel that was really sweet. I think he was just saying, hey, you know, I'm here cleaning my part of the world that I'm really proud of. And this is what I like to do. I saw a runner once. I was running um, down a, a, a narrow alleyway. No one around me. I saw a guy all dressed in white at the front of me running. Old gentleman. I looked on my watch, I looked up and he wasn't there. And there was no way coming out from either side of it. And that gave me a warm feeling as well. Because that said to me, he loves doing this. He probably died running. But he loves doing this and this is what he'll do. His spirit will do because it's what he meant to him. And same with that guy cleaning the streets. It was like his way of keeping his spiritual part of the world clean. It's warm feelings really. It's not always demons. And, and that's another thing. You know, when you watch some of these programs and all it is, particularly the American ghost programs, all demons, it's not. It really is not. It's usually just residual energy or 
someone just trying to be contact to say hey i'm i'm here i'm still okay it's not all monsters demons and the devil it really isn't anyway that's my halloween show i hope it didn't spook you out too much um i'd love to hear your stories do reach out to me um message me on facebook with some of your stories if you've got any if you're willing to let me hear them i'd love to know um and all mine are on hand on heart you can't see me are true to me um whether you believe me or not that's fine anyway enjoy the spooky season keep real keep safe if you are going to go and do that sort of stuff if you're going to look for the darker realms in life keep safe because there there are good things and there are bad things and the bad things are more are some unfortunately are the ones that cling to you not often are the good ones so anyway talk to you next week when it'll be more music related next time happy halloween bye for now <laughs>